HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. This week on Meet and Three, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sing upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, we're talking about hemp, and I've got two guests who are going to speak to two different aspects of the topic. So um, after the break, I'll be joined by Tara Canton, a research farmer working on hemp trials at Rodale Institute. But first, I'm here with Joy Beckerman, the president of the Hemp Industries Association. Joy, thank you so much for being here. Joy, you there? Yes, thank you so much for having <laughs> me, Lisa, and thank you for covering hemp. Oh, no problem. I'm, I'm glad we... I, I think I lost you there for a second. Um, where are you calling in from? I'm in upstate New York in Kingston. Oh, great. Okay, so not too far. Today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, um, so a little background. So hemp is, is such a fascinating crop. Um, it's a plant that can be used to make so many things. You know, we talk about food on this show a lot, but it also is used for thread, cloth, paper. Um, and the really interesting thing I think about hemp is the role it played in American history. You know, it was grown by 
founding fathers, by colonists before the revolution. And um, I, I read this funny thing. One point in the 1700s, Virginians were allowed to pay their taxes in hemp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing when we consider, you know, Hempstead, Long Island, Hempstead County, Arkansas, Hempstead, Texas, Hemp Hill, North Carolina, Hempfield, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I mean, somebody stopped me. We have a very rich history here. In fact, our very first cannabis law in the United States was 1619, and it was in Jamestown Colony, Virginia, ordering farmers to make trial of the Indian hemp seed. And then just to just to piggyback on this issue of, of legal tender, it was actually used as currency and we paid our taxes with it uh, from 1631 to the 1800s, essentially. And there was a, a small point in time in Virginia between 1763 and 1767 where uh, farmers in the Jamestown colony where farmers were actually jailed if they did not grow hemp because it was of such importance to the security of the nation. We wouldn't even have, other than, of course, our indigenous peoples, uh, there would be no Mayflower uh, and no coming over here without hemp. It's it's uh, it's been around a while. It has a, a great place in our nation's history. Right. Well, and that's so interesting. So we went from this this time in history where people were were jailed for not growing hemp to mm-hmm. um, then um, so starting in the 1930s, um, these laws were passed to restrict its growth. Um, and and essentially kind of led to it being banished from American agriculture over the last century. Um, and so so now we're in this moment, the 2018 Farm Bill passed in December, and it fully legalized growing hemp in the U.S. again. So um, I know you and the Hemp Industries Association were advocating for the legalization of hemp farming for a long time. Can you give us a sense of the timeline um, and the work that went into the passage of this bill? Oh, thank you for asking that. It's been a heck of a journey. Indeed, the movement itself, I would say, started with this seminal book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. I'm not sure if you've heard of that book, Miss Lisa, but... Yeah, that is, we would call it really the Bible of all of the cannabis movements written by a hero, may he rest in peace, named Jack Herrer, um, and then edited by a tremendous uh, hero also, Chris Conrad, who is still with us, um, and his wife, Nikki Norris. And it's because keeping in mind that the United States government didn't just remove the plant from our field of awareness, they removed all knowledge of the plant from our field of awareness. And it was a strategic, effective effort and social engineering campaign. Um, And when we talk about the rich history, right, that we have, our our museums would be filled with it or should be, or at least the word, this was the hemp rope, this was the hemp flag, but even the word doesn't exist. So it was that concerted. So Jack Herrer and his team um, sought to uncover, get the documents, find the evidence. They knew that this history existed, but how to prove it, how to, how to uncover the truth and, and re-emerge and reverse this extraordinarily versatile, valuable planetary healing and, and human healing crop. And so they've made these visits to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and through their tremendous efforts, they uncovered the documents, they uncovered the evidence of our tremendous history. And back in the day, we didn't have word processors, you know, back in the mid-80s, it was border tape and and Xerox machines. Right. Um, And they photocopied this stuff and put it into a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes and published that book, Hmm. which is in its, like, 15th or so edition uh, today. Um, And then that book and the movement itself really started to be diffused through the Grateful Dead tours. Now, the Grateful Dead tours were, in fact, for me, I was a poster child for Grateful Dead tours, Mm. um, 
we're cornucopias of knowledge and information and alternative solutions. And, you know, I even learned about natural childbirth, for heaven's sake, and later went on to have two home births at, on, on the Grateful Dead parking lot. <laughs> but that book and the, and the flyers that, and the stickers and the flyers and the T-shirts that were made from that book, excerpts, um, that, that's what actually started me in 1990. I got a flyer at a Grateful Dead show in 1990. And mm. I was like, oh my goodness, there's a solution, a potential solution here. And they've criminalized the solution. So this convergence of a sense of planetary healing and injustice comes together. So, so let's say that the, the mid eighties is when the movement really starts to get going for hemp. Now in 1970, when the Controlled Substances Act uh, passed with the Nixon administration, that is also when normal formed. So we want to give a nod to normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Mm. And I do sit on the, on the National Board of Directors for normal also, which is a little bit unusual to sit on for both plants, but I've been doing this a long time and it's it's my, my life. Right. But, well, and can, so, sorry, can I jump in for a second? I just want to ask you, please. Because so this history is really interesting. And um, it, it, when you talk about these tours and, and the, the activism that was um, happening in the 80s, it, are you talking about, it, is the movement that for hemp um, that you're talking about, is it also a movement for marijuana legalization? Is this sort of one movement around cannabis in many, you know, all of the sort of plants? <laughs> or or is, are you talking specifically about hemp on its own? I'm so glad you're asking that question. And here's where when we move in further into the more modern times of the movement. So that's the middle 80s when it's a sort of a combined, conflated sort of cannabis movement. Okay. And, and even I, who owned the first hemp store in the state of New York, I had a hemp store and I told everybody that it, my stuff in there in the 90s, because this was my knowledge base, was made of marijuana because the exempt parts of the plant, um, according to the Controlled Substances Act of Marijuana, were the mature stalks and the non-viable seeds, meaning seeds that had been sterilized or incapable of germination. And so that's what I sold. But in 1994, the Hemp Industries Association formed. Uh, and Jack Herrer and other, other folks are part of this formation. And, and it forms because they recognize that we need to separate the movements temporarily. That we, that, that the oil seed and fiber types of cannabis now need to be separated from more intoxicating or adult use slash medical types of cannabis in order to, to move this thing forward. And so that is actually why, uh, the Hemp Industries Association formed in 1994, and then we proceeded to sue the DEA, uh, have sued them four times since then, but it began right there in the early 2000s when we talk about this activism. Mm -hmm. um, and because the, the DEA wanted to, in 2001, when we finally started to get a little bit of traction here in this country, uh, Dr. Bronner's had started to add hemp seed oil into their soaps in 1997. Right. Nutiva. Uh, started to sell, you know, started to gain national market share and national shelf space for their hemp seed products. And so the DEA <laughs> didn't want us gaining any traction, so came out with these interim and interpretive rules to make hemp seed oil and non-viable hemp seeds meant for human consumption to be Schedule One controlled substances. And the HIA and several private plaintiffs, we sued the DEA in what are these famous cases now called Hemp One and Hemp Two because we beat them, we won. Mm. Um, and saved the hemp seed food industry um, and the status, the legal status of those items for, you know, American consumers and wholesalers and, and importers and retailers. And so uh, that was a very big deal. 
Now, keep in mind, then Vote Hemp is an organization sort of was the sister of 501c4 organization to Hemp Industries Association's 501c6. And David Bronner of Dr. Bronner's helped to fund that. I mean, we've got to give the nods to the Bronner's Foundation and to David Bronner, who over the last 10 years has given some $1 million to the hemp movement through Vote Hemp, Mm. through Hemp History Week, which is an an annual campaign uh, that the Hemp Industries Association does. And through his own, I mean, he's gotten himself arrested. Uh, great stories, which maybe you'll have me on another time because I'd love to share them. <laughs> he's, Hilarious stories. He's a fascinating story. guy, David. He <laughs> talked to him really, many times. really. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in any event, Vote Hemp happens, and Vote Hemp then becomes the advocacy arm. So keep in mind, various tax-exempt status, you can't do certain things. We're a bona fide 501c6 trade association, the right. Hemp Industries Association. So we needed the 501c4, and, and David and Vote Hemp came along. Eric Steenstra, who is still the president of that board, um, is, is operating Vote Hemp. Um, so those efforts came along. But in terms of membership, when we talk about numbers, uh, the HIA, as of 2014, had 100 members. So from 1994 to 2014, 100 members. Right. Then the, the Farm Bill passes in 2014. Obviously, we have a new one. This one, that was for agricultural pilot programs and research. Right. This one was for full commercial legalization as an agricultural commodity. So we've come a long way, baby. But in 2014, <laughs> that first Farm Bill passes. And our membership has grown now from 2014 to today to 1,300 members. And just in 2018, we went from 500 to 1,200 members, and we've oh got another gosh. new hundred. Yeah, so it's, it's just it's tremendous. But that is that's been the flow um, um, of of the movement, generally speaking, for hemp. And now we have other coalition partners. We have the U.S. Hemp Roundtable involved. Um, We have the U.S. Hemp Authority, which I'm also the vice president of, that has made the first CGMP and and GAP, which is Good Agricultural Practices Standards for Hemp. Um, And, uh, yeah, there's and we have even APA, the American Herbal Products uh, Association, that is a tremendous, important part of of the coalition partner as we look at at hemp being used for general wellness, nutraceuticals, and certainly hemp seed foods. They are masters with FDA law. Right. So, and this, that, I mean, that growth that you just mentioned in the industry is insane, um, right? Like mm-hmm. that jump in number of companies. Um, I, a lot of the attention around hemp, um, especially around the industry in the, in the past year has been around CBD since it's become such a popular wellness product. Is that like, when you look at the industry, is that the biggest product in the industry? Um, or like, I, I'm so interested in whether more people are going to be making food products from hemp too. You don't hear as much Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. No, it's all about infrastructure, 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 right? So we're asking, we're asking farmers to grow a crop for which there's very little infrastructure. And we're asking investors to invest in an infrastructure for which there's very little crop, although that's very quickly changing. Our increase in acreage is exponential in this country and it's, it's tripling right now. But so the point is, we, it's not a, hemp is not plug and play. So it's not, gee, we're going to grow hemp today and take that hemp and put it into our existing textile uh, manufacturing facilities. Mm -hmm. FYI, we don't have any textile manufacturing facilities in the United States anymore anyway. But even if we did, there would need to be 
specific equipment for hemp, the same with paper, right? And when, and you had mentioned cloth and rope and, and mm-hmm. thread and paper, and, and that's great. Those are huge. But let's very quickly, and then I'm going to get back to your question about CBD and food because it's a, it's a perfect targeted question. I'm so glad you asked it. But let's consider for a moment when that we understand that cannabis is here to serve all of humanity's needs. So human and animal nutrition, human and animal body care, human and animal nutraceuticals, then, as you said, paper, textiles, building materials, biocomposites, bioplastics, industrial sealants and coatings, fuel, 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 energy storage, batteries, nanotechnology, biomedical applications. So the full swath of humanity's needs is covered. Now, but the issue is you've got to build the factories to process the hemp into these things. And we don't wow. have that infrastructure here. The extraction infrastructure we've got. That's a less expensive technology than making, uh, you know, textiles right now and making paper. So that in those investment dollars get a more immediate return and cannabidiol and hemp extract are solving immediate problems. So you have folks, you know, who are like, I've had inflammation and I've been dealing with this pain or this anxiety for 10 years. I took this when it's correct, which is why we have the certification seals, because unfortunately, um, not not everybody is manufacturing their products correctly or with the amount of, of, you know, uh, properties in it that they say are in it. But for the ones that are, they're like, gee, and I took this stuff for three days and I'm better. So it's, it's massive. So when we talk about market share, which was the crooks of your question, also the answer is we'll get more infrastructure. We're putting one foot in front of the other and we are going to start to see these trillion dollar industries in the fiber aspects of the plant. But right now, absolutely it's true that CBD and hemp extract is the number one uh, share. But right up there with that share is, um, is uh, food. Food and okay. hemp and, and extracts are right about uh, about that place, and we were at about eight hundred and twenty million dollars in um, in hemp sales in the United States last year. Keep in mind, the United States is the largest importer of hemp raw materials and manufactured goods in the entire planet. Hmm. I, I mean, that is just, yeah. That I just such an interesting point that you made about you know that there's obviously such a demand for CBD because people are using it to. Um, address immediate problems they have, but the fact that just the extraction technology is ahead of the infrastructure in other areas, that's, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense, but I had no idea, Um, you know, but so if you're a hemp farmer now, it's like, there's going to be more people to sell it to because people can do that extraction. And, and so hopefully the infrastructure will, will come along later for other things. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we're, and, and it, it shouldn't go without saying that, um, and by the way, of our 820 million last year, 190 million of it was in CBD sales, just FYI last oh. year in this country. Um, it, it can't go without saying that there are lots of, even though this, this farm bill so beautifully and clearly legalized hemp defined it to include its extracts, derivatives, compounds, cannabinoids, isomers, salts and salts of isomers, and acids, everything, and removed it from the Controlled Substances Act. And now hemp is that. So our definition of marijuana changed for the first time in 81 years because of the Farm Bill. And now hemp is defined in the Agricultural Marketing Act of 1946. It's no longer even defined in the Controlled Substances Act. It's where it belongs in the act that defines agricultural commodities. But even though this is the case, 
we are, and we always knew for the last five years or so that once we got rid of the DEA, the FDA would be sitting there waiting for us, particularly as concerns these nutraceutical products, right? And mm-hmm. so, and the FDA has come out, uh, Commissioner Gottlieb, on the very same day that the Farm Bill was signed on December 20th, and he, he came out with an encouraging statement. He, he said and reaffirmed what the FDA had been saying for the last three and a half years. It wasn't news to any of us in the industry. I, by the way, am also the regulatory uh, officer and industry liaison for Elixinol, which is the fourth largest hemp CBD company in the world. Um, And so we all knew that the FDA had been saying, listen, you can't market CBD, which, you know, and there are arguments over hemp extract versus CBD, but so we don't confuse the listeners, I will try to to keep it more narrow here. Mm. You can't market CBD as a dietary supplement or a food product because uh, because at the time, there had been a new drug application filed for Epidiolex. Now that new drug application has actually been granted, but the, but the outcome is the same as far as the FDA is concerned, which is this is a drug, this is a, an approved drug, uh, Epidiolex, even though that's a very refined version of CBD, an isolated version of CBD, and not that it's not here nor there, but it's, it's derived from marijuana, but CBD is CBD no matter where you get it from. Mm. Um, so uh, so they say you can't market as a dietary supplement and a food product. Well, we are marketing them as dietary supplements, and, and uh, some are for food. Um, and But Commissioner Gottlieb said, listen, we've got – we're considering – we want to make a pathway here. We want to make a pathway for this. And, and we are considering using our authority, meaning the FDA's authority, under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act – that would allow them essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, to break their own rules or to make an exception to their own rules and say, mm-hmm. hey, just because this has been, you know, qualified as a, as, a, as a drug, we still have this authority, if we choose to use it, to allow these products to be sold as dietary supplements and or as food products with conditions. And they're considering using that. And, and Senators Wyden and Merkley, uh, two Democrats, U.S. Senators out of Oregon on January 15th, sent letters to the FDA, Commissioner Gottlieb, encouraging him to do that. There are other coalition letters going out now to Commissioner Gottlieb um, to encourage this, to, to start public hearings on it. And other m- uh, members of Congress are also moving forward. So we are, and if we have to, and we don't want to go this route, but after having sued the FDA, uh, the DEA four times, you know, if we have to tie the FDA up in court um, in order to move this basically can't stop it industry from moving forward, I mean, the toothpaste is out of the tube, the genie is out of the bottle, have fun with that government. So, um, you know, it's, it's about standards. It's about regulating ourselves and, and assuring quality. Um, you know, that, that we believe we can do that as an industry. That's certainly why the U.S. Hemp Authority is formed. So, so around this CBD, there are still these legal issues and different states are taking different approaches because they're afraid of the FDA. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because we, we actually just had a whole um, um, thing happen here in New York where um, cafes and restaurants all over the city had started to sell um, CBD uh, f- CBD <laughs> spiked foods, I guess we'll call them. Um, so there's CBD infused. La- infused. Yeah, infused. CBD infused. <laughs> um, so we have CBD lattes and um, CBD muffins. I mean, it, it really. I live in Brooklyn, and you you can't walk a few blocks, you know, without seeing a sign yeah. of CBD um, food. But um, that all came to a screeching halt this past week because um, the Department of Health basically told everyone you can't sell. 
um, food with CBD in it because it hasn't been approved as safe um, for use in food. And uh, well, so I, 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 you sort of just were talking about this issue and I'm, I'm curious. Um, I think, like you said, the rules and regulations have to catch up. Right. But then there's also this issue that like for so long while hemp was illegal, you couldn't study it properly. Like the, the exactly. So, it's so, so true. Do, I, like, do we, I, I, sorry, I want I just want, you know, I'm wondering like what you think about how the research also needs to catch up and like, is that already starting to happen? Do you see that happening? Um, soon. Absolutely. So thank you for asking both of those questions. And I know in our, in our short remaining time here, I'm going to try to succinctly answer from two <laughs> perspectives. It's going One so is, fast. I, 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 on, on New York, um, I, I, I some good news there. And mm. unlike other states, which are just saying, no, it can't be sold anywhere but in a marijuana dispensary, New York is actually, because I, I, I'm also the president of the New York chapter of the Hemp Industries Association. Mm. I live in New York, New York, and I moved back here for a very robust program, and I'm, and I'm working very closely with some amendment requests on the law, the cannabis law, as it pertains to hemp and CBD hemp that's moving through the legislature right now in the form of the budget. And what I will say that's good news about New York is they are allowing, they are actually protecting their hemp farmers and their emerging hemp extract industry here by allowing us to market these goods as dietary supplements and only as dietary supplements. That is the, that's the, the uh, channel that they are going through right now. Even though the FDA is saying you can't do it as a dietary supplement, New York is saying you can only do it as a dietary okay. supplement. So they're keeping us protected from drugs. They're, they're keeping the FDA at bay by not allowing it in food, but they're demanding, and it's required by the Department of Ag, as it will be by this future Office of Cannabis Management that is being created through this cannabis law, and the Office of Cannabis Management will have authority over hemp extract. Again, that is to protect us from the DEA, um, but they will, they're requiring everything to be manufactured, packaged, labeled, and marketed in, in strict accordance with 21 CFR 111, which are good current, current good manufacturing practices for dietary supplements um, in food and drug administration law. So they're, they're actually doing that, believe it or not, to protect us, even though it seems like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're not letting us do this in food. And, and I can't wait till we get there. Right. But this is part, you know, it's about not going from utopia to utopia from hysterical, you know, prohibition. It doesn't happen overnight. And unfortunately, the state got a little more sophisticated uh, about these hemp extract issues over the last couple of years. And so we're seeing a crackdown there. But they are protecting that industry. When we talk about research, just buttoning that up, a great yeah. question. It's catching up so fast. And if I had a dime for every time, I say, gee, no research. Thank you, Prohibition. It's like I need a T-shirt that says, gee, no research. Thank you, Prohibition. <laughs> yeah. um, because it has obviously put a hell of a damper on things. But, man, people are taking it and running with it. And we, we just need to get some more, particularly as it comes to medical cannabis, adult use cannabis. You know, we need more uh, movement at the federal level because so many of our institutions are of higher education, of course, depend on these federal dollars, and they are all very fearful of delving too much into this cannabis research. Um, not hemp research, they've got the green light right. there, but on these other forms. Um, and even extracts, though, that, that becomes a gray area for them. So even when we talk about the non-intoxicating compounds in hemp, such as cannabidiol or cannabinol or cannabigerol, these, these different non-intoxicating non-tetrahydrocannabinols, um, 
they still are leery about touching those too because they don't want to jeopardize the funding um, that they receive at the federal level. So we still need massive movement um, on those types of cannabis at at the federal level and at the international level, and we're seeing that. Um, and if you, I, I think we're probably running out of time. We here, are. But yeah, it, we got to wrap. The- <laughs> yeah. So good stuff happening mm-hmm. all around, but we've we've got work to do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about hemp. I really appreciate your time. Lisa, I'm so thankful that you're covering it. Great job. And uh, I hope we can talk again. All right. Thank you so much. Um, We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with Tara from the Rodale Institute to talk about hemp farming. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history, and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org events. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. So before the break, we were talking to Joy Beckerman, president of the Hemp Industries Association, about the legalization of hemp and the growing industry. And now I'm joined by Tara Canton, the Hemp Project Director at Rodale Institute. Tara, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So I'm so excited. You know, we we sort of ended the conversation with Joy talking about how there's been a lack of research on hemp. So it was like the perfect transition (laughs) into talking to you. Um, and I really want to get into growing hemp and the farm research you're doing on the crop. Um, before we do that, um, I think it would be really helpful if we could just clarify something for listeners. So it seems like it should be common knowledge at this point, but I think a lot of people are still confused about the, when we're talking about plants, how is hemp different from marijuana? So industrial hemp, it's the same, um, plant. So it's cannabis sativa. Um, however, these varieties, um, that are coined industrial hemp have less than a 0.3% THC content. And THC is is the substance that produces the hallucinogenic effects that are found with marijuana. So it does not contain um, the THC. Right. So it's basically just a different variety of the same plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, perfect. I feel like that's one of those things that's like, you know, you can have this conversation a million times and people are still like, wait, what's the difference? <laughs> so <laughs> good just to start there. Um, so and so when did the industrial hemp trials um, at Rodale kick off? Uh, so the bill um, and the pilot program was launched in 2016. So we were able to plant industrial hemp for the first time in over 80 years in the spring of 2017. Okay. And so when you kicked off that research, um, what were the big questions that you set out to answer? Like, can you talk a little bit about the design of the trial? Yeah, sure. Um, so what we like to look at, so at the Rodale Institute, we really 
um, we have this this mission and this goal, and it was written by our founder, J.I. Rodale, on chalkboard in 1947. And it says that healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. So all of the work we do is based on that. We want to look at the soil, and we want to look at how building your soil and creating healthier soil allows your food to be healthier, and then we have a healthier people and a healthier planet. Right. Um, so that's kind of you know, where we start with all of our research. Um, but then having this crop that hasn't been grown in a long time, we have this big knowledge gap. So we mm-hmm. really wanted to know what what can we do and what can we learn to benefit the farmers. We really want to provide information for them um, to be able to grow this plant and, and grow it well. Um, so for us, we were looking at industrial hemp, um, mostly fiber, but also seed varieties, um, to incorporate into a normal organic gr- crop grain rotation. Okay. So we um, we are certified organic, and so one of the biggest issues you have as an organic farmer is um, fighting weeds. So mm. we know that you can grow hemp pretty pretty tight, and it's going to do a really good job at suppressing those weeds. Mm. Um, yeah. So we we're kind of looking at it as a dual cash crop and a cover crop. Okay. So we use cover cropping, which are crops that you grow over the winter so that you have biomass on the field at all times. And so that's really going to keep your carbon in your soil and prevent, especially with all of this uh, excess moisture we have now, it's going to prevent that soil from washing away. So if you have a plant on your field at all times, it's going to hold on to that soil and hold on to that stuff you've worked so hard to build. Mm. Um, So we're looking at hemp. It's a short season crop. And so we can grow it, um, you know, in that short interim season. Um, But it's also because we know there's a market for it and, um, you know, you can also use it as a cash crop. It's going to help farmers out um, to get some money as well. So we're really looking at the ability um, of hemp to compete with and suppress weeds as a cover and a cash crop in an organic grain crop rotation. Um, that also includes corn, soybean, and wheat. So it's a five-year rotation, and we're able to plug hemp in there twice in that rotation. So you really, what that allows farmers to do is kind of keep doing what they're already doing and then plug this plant in in a few places so yes um, so so yeah. you're saying like in the same rotation like you plug it in twice and maybe once it's harvested as a cash crop and then the other time it's the cover crop um no actually both times it's acting as both um oh. so yeah so it's what's great about hemp is you can plant it and in about two months you can come and, and harvest it. And you don't really have to do a whole lot in between. And that's what you want with a cover crop. You you want something that's going to be, you know, you can put it in there just to have something on your soil in between um, your other crops. Um, because, you know, different crops come off at all different times. And really any period of time that you don't have something growing on the field, you're potentially losing um, your soil. Right. So, so yeah, it's a great crop um, in that way. We've... Uh, there's there's kind of two places where you can um, plug it in. So we uh, you can replace um, it with corn. So you you can treat it the same way as you would corn. Um, so that's what we are, we've done here. Mm. Uh, and so, but another great thing about this. So one thing that happens in organic farming is that there is this thought that because we're not spraying chemical 
herbicides and pesticides, we need to increase our tillage. So the amount of times we're disturbing our soil um, with plows and such. And so that is also bad for your soil. Um, mm-hmm. So what we try to do is is reduce the amount of times that you have to till your soil. Mm-hmm. Um, now, tillage is important to, to fight weeds, um, but what we're showing is that we think that because of hemp's amazing ability to suppress weeds naturally, that if you include it in your rotation, you can also reduce the amount of tillage that you're doing to your soil. Hmm. And so that's, that's also something we're looking at. So we're looking at what are the weeds looking like when hemp is growing in the field, but also what is it looking like after hemp comes off the field. Um, so what we actually did this past year, um, so the first year we just grew it, made sure that we, we could grow it, um, and we were kind of just monitoring its growth. Mm-hmm. Then the second year, we took the hemp off, and in the fall, we planted uh, a cereal rye. Okay. Um, you can use a cereal rye, um, you know, or there's some other small grains you can use as cover crops. And so you're not going to make any money off of those. They're not to sell um, for purchase, but they, what they're doing is they're holding onto that soil over the winter um, and they're going to create, it's going to be that first plant, the first plants that pop up in the spring. Um, so you're getting some, some green on your soil. Um, and so, you know, one thing that we do at the Rodeo Institute is we roll down our cover crops using a roller crimper, which was designed at the Rodale Institute. And right. now you can find them commercially everywhere. Um, so our thought was that, um, you know, we could roll down our cover crop and plant our, our cash crop, in this case it was soybeans, into that following it and that we would have this reduction in weeds because hemp was in the rotation prior. Hmm. Um, and so one thing that we've kind of live by and a lot of organic farmers live by is even if you're doing a no-till system, it's rotational. Right. Meaning, meaning sometimes you still have to till. Usually you need a good tillage to establish that cover crop. Um, and so what we're trying to do here is eliminate that. Huh. Um, so we think by having hemp there first um, that we can successfully eliminate the tillage necessary to establish the cover crop. So that's what we did. We grew the hemp, we took it off, and then we directly drilled the rye. Um, so the cover crop into it without tillage. That, that, yeah, that, I mean, that's incredible. What, what is it about hemp that, that gives it that ability to suppress weeds? Is it just crowding them out? Like, I, I don't quite understand the mechanism, I guess. Yeah, so I, especially with fiber um, crops uh, for hemp, it's, you're packing them very tightly. So, mm. you know, it's almost like a forest of hemp when you walk through there. And, and it's, so mainly it is shading out. Um, there is some research, though um, I haven't found much on it yet, about the potential allelopathic abilities of hemp. Um, so that means that something's, there's a relationship happening in the root zone that's mm. actually chemically altering, um, you know, it's fighting weeds with this chemical root association. Huh. It's a really interesting idea. Um, we're not directly looking into that, but there uh, is some research out there on that, and I'm hoping more pops up. But definitely just really the, the fact that it's shading out those early weeds um, because hemp, it, I mean, it grows fast. It germinates within two to three days, and it's at knee height by the end of the week. Wow. So, so just that initial burst, especially in the early spring, 
those weeds, they have an opportunity before your crops really get going to, to kind of get up there um, with, with all of the light availability. So hemp grows so quickly uh, that it's able to fight those early weeds. Got it. It sort of gets there first. <laughs> There's no yeah. room for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's, that's really the main mechanism. So that's, that's what we're so excited about hemp because we know it has a lot of ability to, um, people are using it to clean out their soil uh, with heavy metals and other things, so soil remediation. Um, we know that it's really good at suppressing weeds. We also know that it requires less. It requires less uh, water um, and it requires less space. Mm. Um, so that's really beneficial um, for, for a lot of reasons. But, yeah, so, you know, one thing that we're really looking into, though, and what farmers really want to know, we also know that it does require and take out a lot of nutrients. So we're, we're trying to find that balance of, of providing that soil remediation or providing that weed suppression, but also maintaining that soil fertility. So, um, so yeah, we're looking into all of that. Um, and so you're a few years into the research. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, it sounds like from what all the things that you just said that you're really like, you've, you've, certainly come to lots like observed a lot of interesting um effects and and are learning a lot about the plant and how it grows in these rotations um is it at the point where you can like this is sort of applicable information you can share with farmers and are you like putting it out there to farmers or is that still kind of further off in the future yeah we definitely want to see um we're definitely noticing some observations but we definitely want to make sure that what we're witnessing is going to happen season after season with all of the crops in the rotation. And also we would like to, to do it again because we know that weather is unpredictable and that all plays a part in it. So we, we want to make sure that the things that we're seeing aren't just a coincidence. Um, but, yeah, we definitely have seen um, within the first year we saw a reduction in weeds. The, the field that we chose in particular to plant this crop was one that we knew that was heavily infested uh, with some of our major problem weeds like foxtail and red root pigweed and ragweed and lamb's quarter, some of the really big problem weeds that farmers are well aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we knew it was heavily infested with it, and so we grew it in this field, and within the first year we saw a reduction in many of those weeds. And by the second year we saw an elimination of a lot of those weeds. Um, and you just mentioned weather and that reminded me, I had this question because, um, when you think about, um, cannabis as a plant, like I, I tend to think of marijuana as this like very sensitive plant people grow it in these like controlled environments and it needs special light and it sort of needs to be coddled. Right. And, um, but from, from what I've heard, hemp is kind of the opposite. It's like a super hardy crop. And I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. If they're, if, if you've been studying that, or if you know, if, if hemp is sort of a resilient crop, obviously this is a big question when we're talking about growing things as the climate changes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely, um, there are some, areas that are, uh, you know, moments that are sensitive. So the first couple of weeks, two to three weeks, it is critical that they have precipitation. Mm. Um, so for us uh, this year, actually at the time that we planted, it, it sounds strange to say, but we actually did have a period of drought. Um, in <laughs> Wait, the beginning. on the East Coast this year? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the beginning of the very beginning of the season. Huh. Um, so we actually had to use um, some overhead sprayers, but it really doesn't require a whole lot. It just needs some precipitation in the first couple weeks until it really gets up, um, you know, to a, a foot or two. 
Um, and so at that point, it's able to take off. It's able to hold on to water well. And um, so in terms of, of irrigation and things like that, it, it's not really necessary. So, I mean, there are areas, you know, in the country that you would want to consider um, using some sort of irrigation, but definitely on the East Coast, um, it is not necessary. And then on the opposite end, with the excess moisture we had later in the season, um, the hemp actually still performed very well. It, it did not affect it um, at all. So, you know, kind of seeing these extremes uh, was really helpful for us to see, you know, how much can hemp really tolerate. And so in terms of issues with precipitation, it's it's very resilient. Um, now, in terms of nutrients, so, you know, we started off on a good foot. We've been farming this land organically for 30 years, so our organic matter was above 4%. So it. it was already pretty high. So, you know, the main thing is um, it is a heavy nitrogen feeder. So um, what mm. we did is we, we used our cover crop before then um, as a nitrogen-fixing cover crop um, to pro- provide that nitrogen. Um, you know, you can apply fertilizer or compost, different things. So mm-hmm. it does require a good amount of nitrogen, um, you know, just just like corn. So okay. really it's it's not any, any different in that sense. Um, so... Yeah, um, but it definitely, you know, the fact that you can grow it on less land, it requires less resources, um, that's, a, that's a huge benefit because if you're putting in less cost and you're already getting a larger profit out of it, that's just going to increase that profit margin. Right, right. So, and um, we have to sort of um, finish up in a second, but um, just as a kind of final question, um, now that, um, so you started this research after um, there was kind of that, after 2014 when hemp was legalized in the sense that there were very few permits given for people to study and grow it. And then now we're we're in this time four or five years later where it's now um, actually commercially legal to grow it across the country. Um, Do you think that a lot of other people will be studying it? Like, do you think that this research will grow and there'll be more, more to come? Um, I really hope so. I know that we will continue to grow this research and and do what we need to do, especially for our organic community who's following us. Um, I think, you know, we still are missing a lot of information. We went over 80 years without any. um, So I don't think we should stop learning now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that um, the research will definitely continue to what extent, I'm not sure. I do fear that now that it is legal to grow, people are just going to jump into it. Um, you know, but, but then mm. again, that is all part of the learning, the learning process. So, you know, <clears throat> as long as they're really, you know, monitoring the plants and, and trying to learn something from it rather than just jumping into it to, to make a buck, um, I think that would be beneficial for all of us because it's still so early and, and we're still really all learning um, how to do this. Right. Totally. Um, well, thank you for, for, you know, sharing some information. I, you're helping by having this conversation, sort of getting people thinking about hemp and how it's grown. And um, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate and share it. I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, 
subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.